0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and we'll be spending the next hour here in D.C. on the eastern side of the Anacostia River, in the part of the city where you'll find neighborhoods like Congress Heights, Anacostia, and Berry Farm. It's Ward 8, and the man who represented Ward 8 on the D.C. Council for 10 years was Marion Berry. The council member and former D.C. mayor passed away in November. And in a few weeks, residents will elect a new representative. Thirteen candidates are on the ballot, vying for the position. Last week, Ballou High School played host to a candidates' forum and straw poll. As hundreds of people waited in long lines to get in, supporters of the various candidates passed out flyers and waved signs at the crowd. One of the Ward 8 residents waiting in line was Christopher Hawthorne.
1: As, as I'm standing out here, I'm looking at a lot of the uh, flyers that are up. It, it appears to be a, a campaign for popularity, but right now Ward 8 needs more than popularity. They need a real leader.
2: A
0: real leader, he says, can address the big issues this part of the nation's capital faces.
1: We're looking for jobs over here. We're also looking for uh, fair housing. We're, we're looking for uh, fair education. We're looking for uh, economic development over here on this side. We're looking for a lot of things to happen for Ward 8.
0: And if you look at the statistics on Ward 8, Hawthorne is right. At the start of this year, the unemployment rate was over 16 percent. That's more than double the rate for the city as a whole. In 2012, the last year for which statistics are available, one in three residents of Ward 8 lived below the poverty line. But when you're telling the story of a community, any community, statistics will only take you so far. So this week, our reporters traveled all over Ward 8 to talk with the people who live there, work there, play there, and in the case of our first story today, pray there. You can stop right here. Timothy Tillman is one of those people. He's a deacon at Our Lady of Perpetual Help, a historically black Catholic church high atop this hill on Morris Road Southeast in Anacostia.
1: You can see the National Stadium from here. When President Clinton was here and he used to jog at Haines Point, you could see the car riding around that was his security detail. So really? it's a, yeah. And it's a great place to watch fireworks. We shut the parking lot down and just let people walk in. This is a great place to be. It reminds you of who you're called to serve because you can see all of the city from here.
0: Parishioners of Our Lady of Perpetual Help have been worshipping on this hill for nearly a century. Before heading outside, Deacon Timothy and I spend some time
1: inside the church building,
0: which, by the way, has gone through several incarnations.
1: The cornerstone on this says 1976. I think that this is church number three.
0: <laughs> Indeed, it is. Church number two went up in 1935 and church number one in October 1920, back when Anacostia was primarily rural
1: and white. If we go back before October 1920, this church came out of the church at St. Teresa of Avila. Negroes worshipped in the basement or in the loft there and had to wait to come to communion and do other things. And the black community there had the idea of of forming their own church, and they were in a conversation about that with uh, Father Weiss.
0: As in Father Franz M.W. Weiss, who came to St. Teresa in 1915. In 1918, the Archbishop of Baltimore granted the black parishioners permission to buy property for a church. And on October 3, 1920, they laid the cornerstone for Our Lady of Perpetual Help. They held their first service in 1921, and before too long, they opened a parochial school in the basement. Current pastor, Father Tom Frank, is proud to say the school eventually grew to some 600 students.
3: Well, we took over and absorbed the school from St. Teresa and the convent from St. Teresa in order to expand the school and keep it going.
0: That was in the late 1960s. Eventually, declining enrollment and high costs led the school to shut its doors. And if you fast forward to today...
3: Now the school down below is closed, and the convent has become the parish center for St. Teresa of Avila.
0: And just to show how much times have changed...
3: St. Teresa's now is pretty much all African-American.
0: As is the ward where it's located. The 2010 census puts Ward 8's African-American population at 94 percent. So it's a far cry from the days when African-Americans had to sit in the back of the church.
2: My mom died nine years ago and she used to tell me that we used to sit so far back in the, in the back of the church that I could hear people's confession.
0: Millicent Hawkins' grandparents were among those who helped start Our Lady of Perpetual Help. She says when her mother was little, she made a vow.
2: That when I get big, I will never sit in the back Back of church.
0: Once Our Lady of Perpetual Help was built, Hawkins says her mother never sat farther back than the fourth row. Marie Jackson has been living in Anacostia since 1959. Her predecessors also helped found the church. My great uncle was one of the first black priests to come from the Washington, D.C. area, Father John Walter Bowman. Bowman was baptized at St. Teresa and then served as an altar boy at Our Lady of Perpetual Help. He went on to become the first black Catholic chaplain of the U.S. Army. Marie Jackson says she's proud of her family's roots at Our Lady of Perpetual Help. And I have five children that
2: have grown up in this parish, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So I'm at home, here to stay forever and ever. Amen.
0: And she's not alone. 650 households now count themselves at home here. The church offers membership in organizations like the Men's Club and Women's Ministry. It has a food pantry. It also hosts the Hilltoppers, a group 55 and older who participate in mass, share lunch, and socialize in the Panorama Room. That's the famous hall next to the chapel where Chuck Brown used to perform. And all of that, says Deacon Timothy Tillman, is a remarkable thing, especially if you look back a century
1: To have a bunch of Negroes gather and say, we want to worship in the right way based on the way that we understand the gospel, and we want to be able to do that in the community where we are. To be the light on the hill, I say that that's divine providence. (laughs) (laughs) ¶¶
0: Haven't had a chance to climb the Morris Street Hill and see that view for yourself? We have pictures on our website, metroconnection.org. We also have a poster from one of Chuck Brown's gigs at the Panorama Room and links to some of his performances. Again, you can find it all at metroconnection.org. In the Ward 8 election coming up later this month, one of the top issues will be affordable housing. It turns out 150 years ago, it was also a pressing issue all around Washington.
4: During the Civil War, Washington was absolutely inundated with people who were literally walking away from slavery.
0: Historian Jane Freundel Levy explains these former slaves were crowding into neighborhoods like Georgetown and Foggy Bottom. To ease the pressure on housing, the U.S. government purchased a large tract of land just across the Anacostia River from the Navy Yard, an area known as Berry Farm. It was a a farm, the farm that belonged to the Berry family. The government broke the land into one-acre lots and sold them to African Americans. Included with each lot, enough lumber to build your own two-room house. Today, Berry Farm is one of D.C.'s largest public housing complexes, home to more than 300 families. But those families are in limbo. For years, the city has been planning a major redevelopment. And as Jacob Fenston tells us, residents don't know when it will happen, whether it will happen,
2: or where they'll end up if it does. So look, four bedroom unit boarded up. Four-bedroom unit boarded
1: up.
5: Felisa Bilal and And Paulette Matthews are showing me around their neighborhood in Barry Farm. Many of the beige and brown townhouses have plywood over the windows, painted dark brown to match.
2: Through every area you go, you'll see three to four to six homes boarded up.
5: As the buildings deteriorate, instead of repairing them, the city is boarding them up.
6: If I had all the money in the world, I would take all of the units that we have at Barry Farm or elsewhere and fix them up.
5: Adrian Todman is executive director of the D.C. Housing Authority, which runs the city's public housing. She says to update all the units in need of updating in the district, the housing authority would require an additional $1 billion. And she says at Berry Farm, where the buildings are 70 years old.
6: The rehab would be a band-aid. We want to fix this. For the future. And to do that, we have to start fresh.
5: The city's already tried this approach of starting fresh right across the street from the Housing Authority headquarters on North Capitol Street. In 2008, two affordable apartment complexes were torn down to be rebuilt as a mixed income community. This was the pilot project, the model that Berry Farm and three other sites would follow. Seven years after demolishing 250 affordable units, just over half have been rebuilt. But Todman says it's wrong to say families are being displaced.
6: Our mission is to provide affordable housing to families. Sometimes that location may change, but there's never an instance where because there's some development we're going to undertake that we take the affordable housing away from our clients.
5: She says over the past 15 years, her agencies relocated more than 1,700 families and fewer than 70 have ended up moving out of D.C.
6: So that idea of, you know, when we move folks, they kind of scatter to the wind is just not the case.
5: At Berry Farm, the city plans to transform 444 public housing units into 1,400 mixed income units. The public housing would be replaced one-to-one, and most residents would be able to return. Todman says working with private developers is the only way to pay for rebuilding Berry Farm. To
6: make these deals work, we need to bring partners to the table who will get something out of it as well.
5: Parisa Naruzzi is executive director of Empower DC, an activist group that's been organizing residents at Berry Farm and fighting the redevelopment.
7: The city is starting with what do the developers want and not starting with how do we make sure we are preserving quality, permanent, affordable housing.
5: She says Todman severely underestimates the displacement the housing authorities caused. While people may still be in the city and in subsidized housing, many have not returned to the neighborhoods they call home.
7: What we've seen over the last 10 years is one after another of redevelopment projects where the affordable units were actually never rebuilt, the people never came back. It, that's
4: an, it's such an old story.
5: Historian Jane Freundel levy Berry Farm was built in 1943 as housing for war workers, civilians flocking to the city for jobs in the booming war economy. But starting in the 1950s, many of the people moving to Berry Farm weren't government workers, but families displaced by redevelopment across the river and southwest.
4: Urban renewal comes to southwest Washington. And practically overnight, the homes of thousands and thousands of people, mainly African-Americans, are wiped out.
5: Ninety-nine percent of the buildings were torn down across a vast 560 acres. At the time, it was the largest such effort ever undertaken in the United States.
4: Urban renewal was supposed to be a process whereby these old and dilapidated rundown neighborhoods were exchanged for new ones. And the people who lived in the old neighborhoods were supposed to be housed in the new neighborhoods. The reality is it didn't work out that way.
5: More than 20,000 people were displaced. They moved to African-American neighborhoods like Shaw and Northwest and east of the Anacostia River.
2: We know that temporary moves usually don't result in people coming back.
5: Again, Berry Farm resident Felisa Bilal.
2: So no, not even a temporary move. We, We encourage all of our residents, all of our neighbors... Not to move, stand your ground.
5: She says despite how run down it is now and despite problems with crime.
2: I do not have an interest in moving. Um, why should we have to move? That's how I feel.
5: Bilal's neighbor, Paulette Matthews, is more open to the idea of moving.
8: I mean, I can adjust to everything, but this is my neighborhood. This is where I was, and I feel as though if I can live through the rough times and the bad times and the maintenance not being able to come and get done, then when they rebuild and everything is fresh and new, I should be able to come and we should be able to come and all get a brand new and fresh start.
5: For now, that fresh start is still on hold. The city's chosen two developers to work on the project and has gotten initial zoning approval. But, says Housing Authority Director Adrian Todman,
6: it all depends on financing, but I feel I feel very good that, you know, this is just an, in short order we'll be able to put a bit of timeline out there for the community.
5: Next year will mark 10 years since the Berry Farm Redevelopment Plan was first approved by the D.C. Council. I'm Jacob Fenston.
2: After the break...
1: It's like their family. I mean like why else you know what they call her mamas, cuz she makes everyone feel like you're part of I their feel family. Welcome when you come here.
0: A business seeks to unite a neighborhood, one meal at a time. That and more as our look at life in Ward 8 continues on Metro Connection here on WAMU 885. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're bringing you stories from Washington's Ward 8, where in a few weeks, residents will elect a new representative to replace Marion Barry on the D.C. Council. We'll kick off this part of the show in Anacostia on Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue at a used car dealership known as Astro Motors. Astro Motors has been in the neighborhood since the 1980s. The lot it currently occupies has hosted car dealerships dating back to the 50s, when the neighborhood was mostly white. But as Martin Ostromule tells us, the future of this unlikely neighborhood institution is looking uncertain.
9: This one here, uh, uh, because it's so cheap, you got this some issues like with the brakes.
3: It's a brisk Thursday morning at Astro Motors in downtown Anacostia. Uh, Salesman Floyd Claybrook is talking to a customer about a red minivan sitting alongside about a dozen other used cars on the modest lot.
9: I don't know. I ain't no mechanic, man. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I sell everything. You know I got to let you know what's wrong with it because I drove I, I drove it since the beginning.
3: Claybrook says business has been slow in recent years
9: it ain't it ain't like it used to be because of the tag situation but it wasn't it, when 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 I before I left the city in 91 believe this is the honest God truth. I I made I probably sold 25 20 cars a month maybe you I, I moved three four cars a, a week off the lot these days his sales are a fraction of that.
3: Part of what's happened, he says, is that D.C. has stopped letting dealers like Astro Motors put temporary paper tags on cars they sell to residents. That makes buying a car more expensive for many of the customers that shop at Astro Motors.
9: It's hard, especially within these, these areas like right here, Southeast, probably in Northeast. It's hard for people to come up with a down payment on a car. And the tag issue was this here. It's like a grace period. Instead of buying your tags right off the bat, you get, you get 45 day, 30 day paper tags. The, the, the dealer at one time were allowed to put on the cards.
3: All of this matters to Claybrook because his clients are often struggling to make ends meet.
9: Your, your low income workers, you know, blue collar workers, you know, not some somebody that's probably making 20 grand a year, maybe 19 grand a year that can afford a used car. Claybrook is a
3: hulking presence on the lot. He's 63, but he's still built like a linebacker. He was the third of ten children, a DC native through and through.
9: I was born in DC. I will come out the old Freeman's Hospital, which is now called Howard University. I was born here in '51, in, in I, and I come out of Foggy Bottom. I ain't always been in D, in, in southeast. I, I come out of Foggy Bottom when when, it, when Foggy Bottom used to look just like over here, K Street and all that. They didn't have all them big buildings. They had houses, just like we got over in here. Yeah.
3: When he was young, his mother moved him over to Anacostia. He attended elementary, middle, and high school there. After graduating, he took work where he could find it, including selling cars for another dealer in the neighborhood. But in 1991, he was convicted of murder and sent to prison. He remained there for two decades for a crime he says he didn't
9: commit. I just came home, like I said, just came back to D.C., 2011, I was out of the city because I was incarcerated. I did 20 years for homicide I never committed. Never committed. Should have been acquitted, but because of the system. You know, and because I, had, I fought it on my own, no lawyers, just this and that, because they, they, they wouldn't overturn the case. Claybrook came
3: back to a city far different from the one he left. D.C. was no longer losing residence. It was no longer known as the nation's murder capital. And once struggling neighborhoods were suddenly grappling with gentrification or revitalization, depending on how you look at it. Claybrook admits that some of the changes have even caught him by surprise.
9: It's just like the but it's different. Back then, you had your fist fights, and it was all over it wasn't it wasn't no guns knives, and all that you know you know you try to you try to press the girls to try to win the girl, this and that, so we fought but uh that's that's basically how it was, you know. And, uh, hey, but it's a whole, again, it's a whole different era now. It's a whole different time.
3: It's also going to be a different time for Anacostia. At least that's what city leaders like Mayor Muriel Bowser say. She's promising to jumpstart development east of the river and bring retail and other amenities to neighborhoods that have long craved them. You can already see those amenities, restaurants and boutiques, popping up along the main thoroughfares here. But while Anacostia is gaining new businesses, it will likely lose others, including Astro Motors, as the neighborhood's economy evolves.
9: 2016, probably, we're probably we, we probably be gone before then. I mean, see this is this this is April. Yeah, we may we we may still be here when the year ends, but uh, I don't think we're gonna be here that, that another another good two years though. I don't think we'd we'll be here
3: until then. Claybrook will keep selling cars. As for what comes next, he says he's not worried. He says he's a jack of all trades, but master of none. I'm Martin Ostermule.
0: These days, Ward 8 has about 74,000 residents. It has approximately 28,000 occupied housing units, 40-some schools, six metro stops, and six sit-down restaurants. Not too long ago, it barely had any. The Players' Lounge, also known as Georgina's, has been around for decades. But it wasn't until 2010 that Ward 8 saw an IHOP move in, the district's first IHOP, actually. Followed by Big Chair Coffee and Grill, Uniontown Bar and Grill, Nourish Food and Drink. And the place we'll visit next, Mama's Pizza Kitchen. She's Mama. Are you Papa?
10: Uh, Yes, they call me Papa, too. Even the, you know, like, uh, people that my age call me Papa. Musa Yulisan runs Mama's Pizza Kitchen
0: with, yes, Mama, his wife, Fatma Nair. Musa and Fatma have been in business in Anacostia since 2012. Here at the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue and V Street Southeast, they serve up fresh pizza, lasagna, sandwiches, wings, and barbecue for takeout, delivery, or dining in.
10: Mama being here, she does everything from scratch. It's just like at home, I'm telling you.
0: Musa and Fatma hail from Turkey, but they moved to the Washington area from New Orleans, where Musa was a big-time restaurateur.
10: One time I used to employ 2,000 people in Italian pies, LLCs.
0: But mistakes were made, he says, business mistakes. To make matters worse, Hurricane Katrina barreled in. Before he knew it, Musa, Fatma, and their three children had nothing.
10: We were pretty much bankrupt. And then in order to keep the family alive and to send them to school, which they were in excellent uh, children at school, I had to start a business.
0: They immediately set their sights on Anacostia.
10: That was Anacostia uh, because inexpensive to start uh, budget was there. I, I mean, we started with a capital of maybe $4,000. But it wasn't just that rents were low. Musa felt they would be helping a neighborhood in need. There's no eater here. I mean, when you walk outside, where are you going to go eat? And I think area needs uh, sit-down places, gathering places. And that's exactly what
0: Mama's Pizza Kitchen has become. The space used to house a carry-out Jamaican place. And like so many takeaway joints in Anacostia, bulletproof glass separated the cashier and kitchen from the customers. Heavy-duty security bars covered the windows. So the first thing Musa and Fatma did when they moved in, they got rid of it all.
10: When we took the window out, we became connected with our customer. And everybody called put the window back. No, it's not going to happen. And then I took the bars down. Then everybody just reacted.
0: After that, they put in some tables and had one of their daughters paint the words, cooked with love, on the wall. And two people tasting that love today are Terrence Hamilton and Maurice Williams. What did you guys order?
1: We ordered the chicken parm. You get your lettuce, tomato, mayo, and pepperoni pizza. It's it's beautiful.
0: The guys say they're thrilled Fatma and Musa decided to become a part of the Anacostia community. And as Maurice puts it...
8: Grow with it. I think the problem in the past is people didn't see the reason to invest in Anacostia. Anacostia is an up-and-coming community.
1: We've got Skyland coming. We have Busboy and Poet that's coming. Yeah, Mama's was like the catalyst, especially for this part of historic Anacostia, because there wasn't anything else. You had to either go up to Alabama Avenue or on the other side of southeast or across the river to Capitol Hillside. It just was like a godsend.
0: Neighborhood resident Julie Taylor has a homemade cake business called, wait for it, O for Heaven's Cakes, She sells her strawberry, lemon, and red velvet cakes here at
2: Mama's and says Musa and Fatma fit right in. They connect really well with the neighborhood, um, and the people seem to love them. They feel like family, (laughs) so
0: it's pretty cool. Julie is a D.C. native and dreams of one day opening a full-on dessert and coffee shop of her own. And you would want to do that in Anacostia?
2: I would, because, you know, from being a D.C. native, and then um, my husband is a pastor in the neighborhood, so we also minister and do stuff here, too, so... Great way to reach out to the community, great way to be connected to the community. And great way to give that community
0: the food options it's been hungering for. We're not a, just a third world country, <laughs> for lack of better word. Rosa Hodge has lived and worked in Anacostia for the better part of 40 years. She hopes more businesses will do as Mama's has done and recognize that Ward 8 is what she calls a new frontier.
2: You know, we enjoy eating out in restaurants and not having to go to Maryland or Upper Northwest. There are folks in Southeast who enjoy living life largely
0: too. And during their time in Anacostia, Fatman Nair and Musa Yulasan have come to know that well. Though they can also identify with some of the tougher issues the community faces, like poverty.
10: We suffered. I fell behind my bills. It was a very difficult life for me to support the family, but I had to stand up for it, you know. Not only that,
0: Musa says, but he can relate to another problem in Ward 8, drug addiction.
10: At one time of my life, my youth, I was a crack addict. I waste my life. And from zero to I build a family and family business. And I'm a great testimony for a lot of people.
0: Musa says money's still a bit tight. The restaurant's turning a profit, but they continue to pay off debts. Once they recover, though, Musa wants to grow Mama's Pizza Kitchen into a local chain so they can feed even more Washingtonians their fresh-baked food, all of it cooked with love. The group Speakeasy DC recently held a workshop for residents of Ward 8 and Ward 7 to help them develop stories of home sweet home. Tatiana Safranova spent time with several storytellers who say their neighborhoods are rich with tales of triumph and tragedy. And a word of caution, this piece contains some offensive language and graphic descriptions of violence.
11: At age 62, Michelle Parkerson has too many stories she wants to share about Ward 7 and 8. There's the one she calls Chucky in The Mystery of Death. Parkerson was just a child when she broke the news to her friend Chucky that someday he and everyone he knew were going to die. Then there's the first time she encountered racism.
2: I think the first thing is to like kind of try to focus the general area of where the stories, because two stories, come together. And to me, they're early coming-of-age stories, things that mark your recognition of a, an adult world.
11: Parkerson is taking notes during a 15-minute break from a full-day storytelling workshop. Through a grant, Speakeasy DC is providing this training to 13 current and former residents of Wards 7 and 8. And today, they will practice telling true stories, exploring the idea of home. Here, Parkerson tells a story of Oxen Hill Farm.
2: White folks had that property. That was all their land So. It was already kind of an unspoken law that you can't go over on the Oxen Hill side, especially Oxen Hill Farm. That was dangerous. Well, of course, you're five, six, seven, eight, danger has such an appeal like candy. One day, no parents around, and we decided we were going to go up the main dust road of the, of the farmhouse. So as we're stepping, somebody says, Y'all need to get off of here. Ain't no niggers allowed on this property. Y'all know this. So all of a sudden, we were like in total freak. Everybody scattered. We we know we need to get the hell off the property and get back on the other side of Southern Avenue. First time I had encountered racism face-to-face, ear-to-ear. So all the things that my parents would discuss around the table, we're talking like 1959, 1960, it suddenly became kind of clear to me.
11: In May, five storytellers, including Parkerson, will perform their stories in front of a live audience. Glory Keaton is one of those storytellers. She's an amateur photographer from the Marshall Heights neighborhood in Ward 7.
1: One of the things that really irritates me is the notion that people think that people who live in Ward 7 and Ward 8 are all the same, that we all are low-income, that we all are kind of downtrodden people, and that's not the case at all, but I wanted to increase the narrative, and I think that was Speak Easy's objective, as well as mine.
11: At the workshop, talking about home means remembering voices and mannerisms and recalling memories and emotions. For Keaton, those memories take her back to 1971, when she was a shy 16-year-old girl. For 32-year-old Binakaya Joy, it's a chance to talk about the past and the present, including her decision, to move away from Southeast D.C.
12: If I'm honest about my relationship to Southeast, then I have to talk about what's uncomfortable with Southeast. And, you know, I don't think that I've always felt like I had a way to do that. And I felt like this was a place to do that.
11: In the story she tells at the workshop, Joy talks of being almost 10 and attending day camp in her neighborhood.
12: So we're on our way back to the house on Atlantic Street after one of our non- Special outing somewhere, and um, I remember we had popsicles or something, and we took turns sitting up front. So I, it was my turn to sit up front with Miss Jackson.
11: Miss Jackson was parking her car when they saw a commotion in the street. Joy describes watching as a screaming woman ran from a man who was wielding a hammer. Joy watched him grab the woman, throw her onto the hood of Miss Jackson's car, and hit her repeatedly with the hammer.
12: And then the hammer just boom, boom.
11: Neighbors stood and watched, but no one did anything to stop it. That was the first time Joy saw violence. Over the next 20 years, living in Ward 8 by what now is Southern Avenue Metro, Joy says she saw violence constantly on the A2 and A3 buses at Anacostia Metro and on the Green Line train. Three weeks before her son was born in August 2013, Joy and her partner moved to an apartment in Northeast D.C., She still visits her family, and as an artist and dancer, puts on programming throughout the area, from writing workshops to dance classes. Joy doubts she will ever move back to Ward 8. I'm Tatiana Safranova.
0: You can hear even more stories on May 8th at a live event Speakeasy DC is holding at the ARC in Ward 8. We have more information on our website, metroconnection.org.
12: In a minute. If we can show that Ward 8 is a flower that wants to bloom, then let it bloom.
0: A teenager's perspective on the future of Ward 8. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 885. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're all about Ward 8, where residents will soon elect a new representative to the DC Council. So far this hour, we've looked at history in the area, housing, businesses, old and new. And in just a bit, we'll talk about education. But our next story is about a particular issue that has long plagued the reputation of Ward 8. Violent crime. Lauren Landau did some digging and found that perceptions and reality don't always match up when it comes to crime east of the Anacostia River.
13: At a town hall meeting last month, Metropolitan Police Chief Kathy Lanier recalled when she first came on the force in the early 1990s. We were in the midst of crack cocaine wars and violent crimes spiking all across the country. Here, my first year on the job, we had 479 murders in the city. So it was truly, truly a very violent time and a war between police and drug markets, largely but a lot of violence in the communities. It was in that climate that the Alliance of Concerned Men formed. James also Brooks is one of the founding members. I meet up with him and a few other members at the group's headquarters
8: in Southeast. We founded the Alliance because of the state of the community at the time. It was in April of uh, 91, I believe it was. And, of course, crack epidemic was full-blown. And uh, the community was in chaos. The group mostly worked in
13: Ward 7 and 8, reaching out to young people and trying to offer them direction. He says today's Ward 8 is not the same as it was in 1991.
8: A lot of crime is bred out of public housing developments. And a lot of those have either been taken out or in the process of being taken out. So it's hard just in raw numbers to say, well, in 91, there had 200 murders in two thousand and five they have fifty five murders but the, the fifty five murders on a percentage basis are, are committed by the represent the same numbers of the of the people that cause crime see it's a certain segment of the population as a tradition of course this doesn 't hold absolutely true that commit a large percentage of the crime so You don't fix the problem, you just move it out.
13: Tyrone Parker is the executive director of the Alliance of Concerned Men. He says the organization works with young adults, some as young as 12 years old, who are returning to society from correctional facilities. Recently, the organization has redoubled some of its efforts on communities in Ward 8.
9: Our most recent initiative has been the Ward 8 Youth E-Valence Initiative, in which we were basically uh, there to work in some of the high crime areas we were um, we were working in uh woodland tours as well as uh uh congress hikes and uh our job was basically to identify kids that have been involved in the judiciary system or on the, on the verge of participating in challenges within their community.
13: He says these kids aren't hopeless.
9: They're hoping that somebody come along, that, that can give them the opportunity to bring the best out of themselves. And given that opportunity, then we'll see a return on whichever the investment may be.
13: And if you look at raw data, that investment appears to be paying off. In the past year, the numbers show fewer homicides and robberies, with or without a gun, being reported in Ward 8. Overall, the area saw 573 fewer reports of violent crime. In an email, MPD Lieutenant Sean Comboy says, Ward 8 has indeed experienced reductions in many of the categories of crime, both last year and thus far this year. But members of the Alliance of Concerned Men say there's much more work to be done. For Arthur Rico Rush, seeing robbery cases drop over a year period isn't something to celebrate.
8: We get caught up in the numbers, you know. To get statistically, there's uh, five robberies over in this neighborhood, six robberies in this neighborhood. If one robbery is too much,
13: really. Lieutenant Conboy said that the numbers are merely a starting point for discussion. He writes that MPD recognizes that a myriad of issues and items may impact a community member's feeling and interpretation of safety beyond the crime numbers. Another issue with discussing crime in Ward 8 is that it's a large area with many different neighborhoods, not all of which have a crime problem. Raymond Davis is the founder of Reaching All Youth to Advance Leadership and Integrity, the Breakfast Foundation, or Rayali Inc.
9: It's like five or six little condominiums. Right on Good Hope Road in Altamont, right? Haven't been five shootings right there and that's in the center of Ward Eight, on Good Hope and Altamont, right past Marlbury Plaza. And in the back of that you have Parknella apartments. And we we owned the two condos in those five buildings for forty two years. No one's never broken in. Right now today the door probably still open, like it used to be in the seventies. Arthur Rico
13: Rush says policing helps. But it's not going to totally eradicate the problem of violent crime.
8: I can put you in my car in a half an hour. I can take you to an area where it's 15 or 20 people that wouldn't care if they went to jail or not. It just doesn't make a difference.
13: In fact, he says, for some of these guys, going to jail would be an improvement in their living conditions. And until city leaders and the local community address that reality, he says, crime will continue to be a challenge for some parts of Ward 8. I'm Lauren Landau.
0: the show we heard about the concerns surrounding education in Ward 8. Well, our next story is about a charter school planned for the military installation known as Joint Base Anacostia Bowling. Nearly 1,000 children live there. Special correspondent Kevita Cardoza has more on how the proposed school could affect life and learning for these kids.
14: Larissa Camilleri is juggling backpacks and lunchboxes as she drops off her two sons, 8-year-old Eric and 5-year-old Nicholas, at Lecky Elementary School in southeast D.C. Eric spots friends and runs off with a squeal of excitement, but Nicholas is more reluctant to leave his mum. Okay, remember, that's the one
12: time you tell me. Can we
14: hug? I love you. The Camilleries are one of the approximately 150 families who work at Joint Base Anacostia Bowling and whose children attend school at Lecky. Larissa's husband, Army Sergeant Matthew Camilleri, is away frequently for trainings. In between his absences, they've moved five times in the past seven years. Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, Germany, and now D.C. Larissa says Eric is flexible and calm and loves meeting new people. But she worries about Nicholas's adjustment. And so Larissa, a dental hygienist, decided not to work during this posting. A lot of times being a military child is rough. Daddy
12: or mommy leaving. They're sad. They act out. They cry. There's so many emotions that they don't know how to deal with. Then you have the ones that are quiet. They won't
14: say anything. They won't do anything. They won't participate. That's the silent child. Nearly two million American children have parents currently serving in the military, and the uncertainties they face spill into the classroom. At Leckie Elementary, teachers are used to children starting school in the middle of the academic year because of military transfers. But in many public schools, that's not the case. Staff may not even know that a child is part of a military family.
4: I sent you all the 2011 and 13 surveys.
14: Colonel Monique Minnick is with the U.S. Air Force. She's sitting at a conference table, poring over colored spreadsheets of data on children who live on base. Minnick is fourth-generation military from Texas and talks fast, in machine gun
4: mode, as she puts it. We have 255 being bussed off the property. We still have about 300-and-something kids. That means parents are driving their kids. That's a lot. That's adding to the congestion on the road. Daniel Dunham nods.
14: He's a school liaison officer here who helps military families like the Camilleries at Joint Base Anacostia Bowling. He's constantly on the road, driving 50,000 miles last year alone, visiting the nearly 200 D.C. public schools in his portfolio.
5: There, there have been days when these kids are experiencing two-hour Two commute hours, times yeah. on the way back.
14: Minnick says Leckie Elementary has been a huge success, The challenge is what comes after Leckie. Only about 20% of students are reading and doing math at grade level in nearby traditional middle and high schools. Dunham says he's heard the same concerns from non-military families who live close by.
5: It's the Navy's position, wherever their installation is, that they be good neighbors.
14: And so Minnick has decided that military leaders here need to aggressively explore a middle school charter option.
4: I think the timing is really, really ripe. It's, it's a good time to capitalize on locking and loading and getting, getting,
2: uh, getting something to help the community.
14: Public charter schools on military bases are part of a growing trend, as Department of Defense schools have closed or consolidated in the last few years. Since 2001, eight charter schools have been established on domestic military installations, including Little Rock Air Force Base in Arkansas, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California, and Naval Air Station in Key West, Florida. These schools educate nearly 3,000 students, two-thirds of whom are military. Here in Washington, military families often arrive in the city after the DC school lottery is complete, so they have fewer choices in where to send their children. Several states, including Maryland, have changed state law to allow certain charter schools to give enrollment preference to special subpopulations, such as military children. For example, at Imagine Andrews Public Charter School on Joint Base Andrews in Prince George's County, 65% of seats are reserved for military students. In D.C., Councilmember David Grosso has introduced a bill that would allow 50% of seats at the proposed charter school to be reserved for military children. He toured the base last year with the installation commander when the topic came up.
10: He said, we need to do something about this. It's really serious. These children are unique in the sense that they do come and go in the middle of the spring. And it's not like these are like super wealthy families, right? I mean, military families are just getting by often. And to have something where they say, well, you know, we have this charter here and we've reserved some spaces for your child, quality school that takes some stress off a parent who has been shifted from one part of the country to another.
14: The bill will be up for a hearing before the end of the legislative session in July. Scott Pearson, executive director of the D.C. Public Charter School Board, has followed the discussions closely. In the past, he worked to bring Learn6, a charter school, onto Naval Station Great Lakes in North Chicago, Illinois. He says the base was surrounded by failing traditional schools.
5: And the families on that base had no options other than to either go to those schools or live more than an hour commute from the base.
14: Pearson says it became an issue of national security.
5: Virtually every training program, including basic boot camp for the Navy, happens there. And what they were finding was they were having difficulty getting their best people who had families to be willing to relocate because of the quality of the local schools. So it becomes not only an issue of the education for the children, but it becomes an issue of military readiness.
14: Larissa Camilleri says she and other military families are excited at the prospect of a charter school on base, even though her family might have moved on by the time it opens. I may not be here for that, but it would be a perfect transition. And who knows, she says, they might be stationed here again. I'm Kavitha Cardoza. You can read more of Kavitha's reporting on the
0: proposed charter school at Joint Base Anacostia Bowling in this weekend's Washington Post magazine.
10: Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
0: started today's show in Congress Heights at Baloo High School. And that's where we'll wrap up things today, too. Tara Boyle visited Baloo and met up with a young Ward 8 native who has plenty to say about
7: her community's future. If you have yet to visit the newly built Baloo High School, picture this floor to ceiling windows facing out on a courtyard, wide hallways with colorful murals, and a vast wood paneled auditorium that looks ready to host a Broadway production. Yes.
12: This is beautiful. The third floor view is very beautiful. I think the best view, personally, is from the state.
7: Our tour guide is 16-year-old Tiandra Ames, the president of Baloo's junior class. As we walk around, it becomes clear that everyone here knows Tiandra, and that Tiandra is involved in seemingly everything.
12: I'm a part of BILA, Blue Youth Leaders in Action. I'm a part of the honor Rolls committee. I'm a part of the uniform committee I'm in the National Honor Society. I just recently became an Achiever Scholar.
7: Tiandra is also part of a team that just won a citywide competition organized by the Aspen Institute. It's called the Aspen Challenge and calls on high schoolers to choose a pressing global problem and work to find a solution. The blue team chose the topic of violence.
12: We created a basketball tournament and we chose teams and we put students together who were unlikely allies and they were forced to work together and they saw that if I want to play on this team, I have to be willing to work with this person. Some people were put off the team because they weren't willing to work with that person, but it was fine. Because in the end, we did have our tournament, we did have a championship, and we had a lot of sponsors come in and represent us. So let's talk
7: a little bit about violence, because I think you know, people who've never visited Baloo or the neighborhood, a lot of Washingtonians have a perception that violence is a real problem here. Can you put that in perspective for people who who may not know that much about Baloo?
12: Um, when I first got here in my ninth grade year, I kinda thought that oh my gosh, it's gonna be a school of Alice all the time. I was highly mistaken. The school hasn't been violent in a sense of what it has been, like with a violent shooting. I mean, yes, we do have our fights once in a while. That's common in every school. But it's not an unsafe school. It's really not. Um, My family has been going here since... My brother graduated in oh nine. He's been here since his ninth grade year since then. And my mom trusted school and I know various kids whose parents went to this school. I don't personally see Blue as a violent school. I just think if you take your chance to come to Baloo, now that we have a new building and a brand new principal who's doing a marvelous job so far, the the balance level actually has went down in Baloo this school year actually.
7: Here in Ward 8, people will be going to the polls to vote in a couple of weeks for a new member of the D.C. Council. What would you like them to focus on? What's important to you?
12: Um, I would like for them to focus on more community-based activities with students outside of school. So more uh, working with the Chancellor to try to get activities going on out of the school to make our community better. Because I feel like if we can show that War 8 is a flower that wants to bloom, then let it bloom.
0: That was 16 year old Tiandra Ames, a junior at Ballou High School. Tiandra and her Aspen Challenge teammates are heading to Colorado this summer to present their anti violence initiative at the Aspen Ideas Festival. You can learn more about their work and the challenge on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Benston, Martin Ostromule, Kavitha Cardoza, Tara Boyle, and Lauren Landau, along with reporter Tatiana Safranova. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, head to our website, metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week for a special Earth Day edition of the show. It's called The Three R's as we explore all kinds of reducing, reusing, and recycling in the D.C. region. We'll hear why sewage may be flowing into streams at the National Arboretum and what's being done to fix the problem. We'll visit a bioreactor turning Chesapeake Bay algae into energy. And we'll meet a man who turns the castaways of everyday life into eye-catching art. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro
4: Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.